You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast, I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. The Buffalo Bills are 4-0. It's disco balls and dancers. The shout song is playing in your head on a random Tuesday afternoon. And here we are. 4-0. First time since 2008 that the Buffalo Bills have been 4-0. And we're going to spend a little bit of time digesting the last time the Buffalo Bills were 4-0. But before we get to that, some housekeeping items to go over. This is the typical Thursday episode of the Bruce Exclusive, if any of my episodes can be described as typical. But tomorrow... Historically, we would do your hashtag Almighty Takes and crumbling their cookies, which would be strategy about the upcoming, in this case, Bills Titans game. I'm not entirely sure. At the time of this recording, it is 7:22 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, October 7th, when I'm recording this. You are listening to it on Thursday. I'm not entirely sure there's going to be a game on Sunday between the Buffalo Bills and the Tennessee Titans, given what is currently going on with the Titans and the COVID protocol violations that are currently being investigated by the NFL. As such, Friday will be a different kind of episode. For those of you who have sent in the almighty takes, I will hold them in the event that I decide to do an episode and we elect to move forward with the game as a league. But in the event they don't have an episode, I don't want to have wasted that entire episode on a strategy that may or may not be true. So I do, as in typical Bruce fashion, have a backup plan, a contingency, if you will. I actually had a handful of contingencies, and I went with the one that I thought was going to be most fun. So we do have an episode coming tomorrow. It is going to be relevant to the time of year that we're at, but... It is not going to be specifically about the Titans game. If the Bills end up playing the Titans, so be it. Awesome. 
You will have missed out on a week of Almighty Takes and a week of Crumbling the Cookies. Unless I'm able to kind of fit a third episode in, which I don't necessarily know I'll be able to do. But at this time, I would consider the possibility that the Bills might not play the Tennessee Titans. So that is the plan for today's episode and tomorrow's episode. The last time the Bills were 4-0, Trent Edwards was the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. And if you will recall correctly, one of the Bruceisms that you are used to hearing on this podcast is that whether or not you win or lose is not necessarily predictive of whether or not you will win and lose in the future. How you win and lose is more predictive of whether or not you will win and lose. It goes along with my Bruceism that how and why are more important interrogatives than what. How you win, why you win, how you lose, why you lose are more important from a predictive standpoint than the fact that you won or lost. So not all 4-0 records are created the same. Let's take a gander, if we will, at what the 4-0 looked like last time the Bills had achieved this record. In the 2008 season, the Buffalo Bills opened against the Seattle Seahawks, who were widely considered to be a, someone who's going to be a good team that year. Matt Hasselbeck was a franchise quarterback. They had some good weapons. And Buffalo came out and beat them 34 to 10. And it kind of launched the Bills into an idea that maybe this team was going to be good. I'll never forget the Bills pulling away with a 30-yard touchdown over the middle of the field with a bullet from Trent Edwards to tight end Robert Royal. That was the famous Brian Mormon throwing a touchdown pass on a fake field goal to Ryan Denny game. And the Bills got off to a 1-0 start. Roscoe Parrish contributed with a punt return touchdown. Young players across the team, Marshawn Lynch, were being part of this win. The Bills week two played against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Second round rookie James Hardy went up and caught a pass in the back corner of the end zone and we all said that's what we drafted him for. We drafted him to have this big complimentary target to wide receiver Lee Evans in the corner of this end zone. That's the kind of play that we had imagined when the Bills had drafted James Hardy and we came into that year going as a fan base, we need a big receiver, we need a big receiver, we need a big receiver. We got one and he did the thing that big receivers do. That was the beginning of Captain Clutch for the Buffalo Bills. In the fourth quarter, the Jaguars were ahead, but the Bills rallied back by getting a field goal and the touchdown pass to James Hardy. Then in week three against the Oakland Raiders, Captain Clutch showed up again. Game winning 38 yard field goal after Trent Edwards threw a touchdown pass to Roscoe Paris, where he squeaked in the corner front corner of the end zone. That was when Jamarcus Russell 
hit a slant over the middle for 84 yards to Johnny Lee Higgins and Dante Whitner chased him down from behind. And we said, that's the kind of attitude that a team like this needs. Every team needs someone like that on their team. Someone who's not going to get pushed over. And the Bills have been pushed over for far too long. It's not going to happen as long as Dante Whitner is a member of this defensive backfield. Week four, St. Louis Rams. One of the best running backs in the entire league, Steven Jackson. Was up against the Bills run defense. And the Bills came out again with a big fourth quarter. Behind in the fourth quarter again. Put up 18 points in the fourth quarter. Trent Edwards, big looping rainbow shot. Lee Evans, Jabari Greer, pick six. Fred Jackson did his thing. Got a 22-yard touchdown run. And again, Captain Clutch, three games in a row. And then week five happened. Week five happened, and the infamous Trent Edwards-Adrian Wilson hit happened. Now, I have gone on record as saying that I am not of the opinion that Trent Edwards was on his path to stardom before that hit. I don't think that Trent Edwards in 2008 was on his way to being a great NFL quarterback And Adrian Wilson destroyed that for him. Here are the game logs for Trent Edwards prior to that hit. Week one against Seattle, 19 of 30 for 215 and one touchdown. Week two, 20 of 25 for 239 and a touchdown. Week three, 24 of 39 for 279 and a touchdown. Also a pick. Week four. 15 of 25 for 197, a touchdown and a pick. So he had four touchdowns, two interceptions. And then the Arizona game happened. When he came back from the Arizona game, he had what I would consider to be the best game of his career. 25 of 30 against the San Diego Chargers at the time for 261 and a touchdown for a passer rating of 114. Then... 21 of 35 for 227 and a pick against the Dolphins. 24 of 35 for 289, a touchdown and two picks against the Jets. 13 of 23 for 120, a touchdown and two picks against the New England Patriots. 16 of 26 for 148, a touchdown and three picks against Cleveland. All came off the rails. It didn't come off the rails because he got hit. I will continue to say that it was going to come off the rails anyway because he wasn't the guy. Compare that qualitatively to the Buffalo Bills 4-0 start this year. Dominant offensive play, MVP candidate at quarterback. Not all 4-0s are created equal. Josh Allen has roughly half of the entire Trent Edwards 2008 season in passing yards already, and he's a quarter of the way through. So he's on pace for double 
what Trent Edwards did in passing yards on pace for over quadruple the passing touchdowns of Trent Edwards. I understand that there will very likely be regression, but it's not the same 4-0 that it was. Josh Allen is already way better than Trent Edwards ever was. So 4-0 looks differently, qualitatively. The old adage is you are what your record says you are. And that's not true. You might be what your record says you are at the end of the year. But this is proof that 4-0 doesn't necessarily always look the same for every team. That is not the story that's going to be told about the 2020 Buffalo Bills. It will not be told the same way I just told the story of the 2008 Buffalo Bills. There are some strange and eerie similarities, but it is not the same team, mostly because the quarterback's not the same and the coach isn't the same. Josh Allen isn't Trent Edwards. Sean McDermott isn't Dick Duran. On days when people on social media don't like Sean McDermott, they might call him Dick Duran, but he's not. He's progressive. He's evolving, as is the quarterback. Those are the differences right there, summed up in one word. Evolving. Josh Allen got better and better and better. Sean McDermott got better and better and better. Dick Duran never did. Trent Edwards never did. If you want to say that the Bills starting off in 2008 is similar to the way that the Bills may have looked at times in 2019 with a defense that was controlling things and hoping for some heroics from a quarterback late. Okay, closer, perhaps, but not even close to being the way that this 2020 Buffalo Bills team is currently built. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We are going to dive into the narratives from the Bills Raiders game. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. The Bills went to Vegas. They went into the Death Star. They did their trench run. They used the force. The targeting computer was not necessary. You know, now that I think about this, this is a pretty good analogy for Josh Allen. Using the force, man. No targeting computer necessary. Just swing it out there. Use the force, Josh. The torpedoes went into the exhaust shaft, blew up the Death Star. The Bills are on their way back to Western New York and Orchard Park. But there were some things that came out of that game that I thought were really important to talk about. Let's start with the defense. Let's start with the ability to stop the run better against Josh Jacobs than the Bills did against Daryl Henderson and the Rams the previous week. The first and most important thing is this discussion about Starla Tulele. Do the Bills miss Starla Tulele? Yes. The answer is yes. They absolutely miss Starla Tulele, but not just for the obvious reason. The obvious reason is Starla Tulele was a good run defender. Yes, that's true. But also, Starla Tulele normalized 
the defensive tackle rotation for this team. You knew he was going to start at one tech next to Ed Oliver, and people were going to fall in the second line behind him. But in his absence, the Bills have experimented with multiple different combinations at their defensive tackle pairings. Some have worked better than others. One that has worked not well at all, I would say has had potentially disastrous results, was putting Quentin Jefferson at the one tech. You saw that a little bit against the Rams, and it was not good at all. It was not great, Bob, as they say. But they started to kind of figure it out a little bit this week. This week, it was Oliver and Phillips and Jefferson and Butler. Butler playing the one tech instead of Butler playing the three tech with Harrison Phillips at the one tech last week. Instead, it's Butler at the one tech with Quinton Jefferson at the three tech. So better defensive tackle pairings were the primary reason why the Bills' run defense was better this week than it was last week. Let's talk about A.J. Klein. You all remember, I was not a huge fan of the A.J. Klein signing. I thought it was an overpay for a person I thought was going to be a fourth or fifth linebacker. He is the third linebacker, and he has been a liability in coverage. He got replaced by Dodson, and I thought Dodson played better. But... Teams are going to continue to look for heavier sets, 12, 22, 21 personnel, to force the Bills into base defense. They don't want to play that. They want to play nickel. And they're going to try and force the Bills into base defense to force A.J. Klein onto the field and then take advantage of him in coverage against the heavier personnel. Keep an eye out for it for future games. For teams going 21, 12, 22 personnel and then throwing out of those heavier things so that they get A.J. Klein against the tight end or A.J. Klein against a running back. Either way, the offense probably feels good about their chances there. The key to the defense was not asking Quentin Jefferson to play one tech. But the play after Matt Milano got hurt the two linebackers on the field were Dodson and Edmonds. And I have a feeling that when the time comes to roll out linebackers against pass looks, that Dodson and Edmonds will be the two linebackers on the field the majority of the time for the Buffalo Bills while Matt Milano is recovering. The defense was winning their one-on-ones in the second half against the Raiders. That's how they were able to get pressure. In the first half, they were bringing blitzes because they weren't getting home. And when they brought blitzes, Derek Carr was predictably getting the ball out fast and getting the chains moving. When the Bills in the second half were able to get pressure with just four without having to bring blitzes, that's when you started to see pockets collapsing, turnovers. Because Derek Carr didn't have a necessarily easy answer because the easy checkdown answer was covered by the second level that was not vacated by the fact that they blitzed. This game is a microcosm of how important it is in Sean McDermott's defense to get pressure with your front four and not have to bring crazy amounts of blitz. You want to be able to do it if necessary. And if you feel like it's going to be timely and if you feel like there's a rock, paper, scissors in your favor. I've said this before, there is an element of rock, paper, scissors to defensive play calling 
that fans are not necessarily always comfortable with. Certain things beat certain things at certain times. And you want to have the ability to blitz if necessary, but you don't want to be required to do it. Because if you're required to do it to bring pressure, it adds a level of predictability to your defense, which can be schemed against. Let's move on. The Bills special teams, Corey Bohorkas, Tyler Bass, both are not doing well right now. Corey Bohorkas was abysmal against the Raiders, could not keep the ball out of the end zone, and messed up his holding responsibilities for Tyler Bass. Now, should Tyler Bass still be able to make those field goals? Absolutely. But he wasn't being helped along. Right now, Corey Bohorkas is not doing Tyler Bass any favors by messing up the holding for him. I will say that having rookie kickers struggle is not uncommon. And having rookie kickers who struggle, who then go on to be good and productive kickers in the NFL is also common. Sebastian Janikowski, gigantic leg, sea bass for the Raiders, 68.8% of his field goals. 68.8% of his field goals were made during his rookie year, including being an abysmal one of four from 50 plus and eight of 14 between 40 and 49. Adam Vinatieri, Hall of Fame kicker, probably 77.1% field goal percentage. Also eight of 14 between 40 and 49. How about Steven Goskowski, who took over for Adam Vinatieri. 76.9% his first year. Two of four from 40 to 49. Seven out of 10 from 30 to 39. He was missing gimmies. So it's not unheard of to have kickers struggle as rookies. So I'm not throwing in the towel on Tyler Bass yet. I'm not quite hitting the panic button yet. I would like to see Corey Bohorkas hold the ball a little better. Let's give our rookie kicker an opportunity, his best opportunity to be successful. But neither one of them was good against the Raiders. Can you believe we're 22 minutes into this podcast and we haven't talked about Josh Allen? Isn't that great? Isn't it great? That a dude can throw for 288 and a couple touchdowns, run for a touchdown, and not be story one because of how good he's been so far this year. There is a level of predictability to excellence that is really good. When you are excellent at something, it's not an outlier. When you are excellent at something, at some point it becomes expected. Josh Allen's starting to get to that spot, which is amazing and wonderful, and we should bask in it. But that brings me to an interesting point. Josh Allen took a terrible sack on third down that knocked the Bills outside field goal range and eliminated the opportunity for them to go up three scores at a pivotal point in the game. Me saying this is not me focusing on the negative. Me saying this is an acknowledgement that there are things that happened. And when you do your job, 
That's good. You get a thumbs up. Awesome. You do your job. When you do something outside of the realm of what is expected of your position, whether that's positive or negative, it's important to be notated. Me saying that doesn't mean I'm focusing on the negative. It means I'm acknowledging there's still work to be done. He also flipped the ball to Diggs on the play where he hurt his shoulder. That is an exceptional play that very, very few people can make in this league. And I'm convinced Stefan Diggs got that first down, by the way. That's the gamer mentality. And that's a good thing. The throw to John Brown at the goal line was probably the best throw Josh Allen's ever made. I understand the throw to Robert Foster against the Jaguars, where the pocket was collapsing on him and he uncorked it. Was a great throw. There was almost zero separation on the John Brown throw. That was an unbelievable throw. I will continue to pound the table saying that was the best throw Josh Allen's ever made. But if I'm going to point those things out, because they exist outside the realm of normal. When Josh Allen throws a bubble screen to a receiver and they get six yards, you go, okay, yeah, you check the box, you move on. But there are certain things that are what you consider to be noteworthy, whether that's positive or negative. Me saying that, hey, he took a really bad sack on third down that could have hurt the team. It did hurt the team, but it didn't end up hurting the end result. That's not me focusing on the negative. It is noteworthy, so it will be notated. It was another good game from Josh Allen. He's an MVP candidate through four weeks. He has done nothing at this point that should lead us as a fan base to believe that he's not the guy at this point. Statistically significant data is a real thing. I have preached it since the beginning, but every box this year has been checked in his favor. I wrote an opinion piece for Buffalo Rumbling saying the step back game is probably coming. And when it does, don't freak out about it because he's got four great games. So when he has one negative game that might come in the future, I'm not going to lose my marbles about it. It's going to take the mean down. The average will decrease because there's a negative below the mean pulling it down. But that's all it is. One data point that moves the mean down. And if the mean doesn't get moved down at all, then Josh Allen has one of the greatest seasons in 2020 of any quarterback in the history of the league. So yeah, the mean's probably going to get moved down. But when it happens, we'll evaluate it individually as it's noteworthy. There was another player who I want to talk about, aside from Josh Allen, who I have had some strong opinions about in the past, and that is none other than Mr. Josh Norman. I said when we signed him, I was not a fan of the signing. Specifically, because I can't be sure if he can do one thing that's pretty important for a defensive back to be able to do. Run. I don't know if he can run anymore. So I was very, very interested to see Josh Norman. And I spent some time going through the All-22 just watching Josh Norman. And before I get into that, 
Let's take a second to talk about opinions that you might hear from content creators, media that don't align with the team. It applies in this case with Josh Norman. It applied in a lot of cases with Josh Allen. If you want the people that you're listening to and you want the people you're reading to just rubber stamp everything a team does, there's really no purpose in having conversation about it at that point. If I don't have opinions that exist outside of what the team does, there's no point. There's no point in having any conversations before decisions are made. There's no point in having discussions before free agency. There's no point in having discussions before the draft. Just delete it all. Wait until the picks get made and then say how great it was. Just rubber stamp everything. But that's not what we do in this space. What we do in this space is we have opinions that exist outside of those of the organization. Well, Bruce, do you think you're smarter than Brandon Bean? No, no, I don't. I think I might have a different opinion than Brandon Bean. And sometimes I'm going to be wrong and sometimes I'm going to be right. But really, intellectual honesty is what matters in these conversations. And that's what you're going to get from me about Josh Norman. I have gone on record before as saying I was not a fan of the Josh Norman signing. I had a specific set of reasons I gave you as to why I was not a fan of it. That is now done. Now we move on to objective data collection. There's two parts of decision-making. The point up until the decision is made and the point after the decision is made. Prior to the decision being made, people bounce around opinions, positives and negative, pros and cons. What should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? And that's part of the fun of consuming content. That's part of the reason why people always click on mock drafts. Mock drafts get tons of clicks because it generates conversation and discussion. Then the decision is made. And at that point, all the hypotheticals are gone. Poof, in an instant. And now it's about evaluation of the data, which is separate from that. Ideally, if you're intellectually honest, it's separate, unless you're trying to reinforce a narrative. I promised you intellectual honesty, and I'm going to give it to you. Josh Norman was encouraging to me. I watched every single snap that Josh Norman took. There were a couple noteworthy plays. Darren Waller ran away from him on a drag route on third and three. Waller ran a 4-4-6 at the combine. Okay. He was in coverage on the touchdown to Aguilar that got called back. But Micah Hyde got caught in no man's land there between the deep post running behind him and the curl in front of him. They're in cover three, and Norman clearly thought he had help when that person starts to cross. Third and six later on, he carried Zay Jones in man coverage on the left side of the formation down the field really well. Zay Jones also ran a 4-4-6. Norm missed a tackle on second and five. Again, he was carrying Waller across the formation, but he actually overran him a little bit. He was a little too aggressive, a little too ahead of it. Then, first and 20, 11-16 to go in the fourth, he carries Nelson Aguilar down the field 
really well in coverage. Aguilar ran a 4-3-9. Maybe, maybe Norman can still run. His physicality helps him because it helps the receivers not be able to get in full gate. Can't really open up their stride and really turn on the burners because of how physical Josh Norman's going to be. He wasn't challenged down the field in coverage basically at all in this game. But if you look at the way he moved, there is room for optimism. Obviously, he made a good play with the peanut punch. The famous Charles Tillman punched the ball. And I'm not saying that Josh Norman is the answer. I'm saying we have one piece of data and that one piece of data is encouraging. But Josh Norman, maybe, maybe can still move. Now, he's not going to likely be a better athlete than he was when he came out of college. He was a 4'6 guy coming out of college. So it's not like Josh Norman suddenly became fast, but he did move fairly well. There is one thing I'd like to see from Josh Norman that will really help determine whether or not he can run. The Bills run a coverage on occasion called Palms coverage. Palms coverage is a pattern match coverage. I usually try to avoid discussing X and O's too deeply on this podcast because audio is not the best medium by which to explain X's and O's. However, I think I can do this one. So it's a two-on-two coverage, typically with a safety and a corner. The safety is going to play off and is going to be looking through the inside receiver to the quarterback. So if you think about two receivers next to each other in the formation, whether that's right side or left side, the outside corner is playing off. He is looking through the inside receiver to the quarterback. And this creates a binary, a conditional binary for the corner, much in the same way that an RPO creates a conditional binary for a quarterback. If you think about an RPO, okay, if this linebacker goes left, I'm going to throw it. If he goes right, I'm not going to. Things like that creates easy binaries. It's the same thing, but it creates that same binary for a corner. If the inside receiver breaks on an outbreaking route, the corner who is lined up over the first receiver is going to jump that route. He's going to jump that out route. If the number two receiver, the inside receiver, carries it vertically or goes inside, then the corner and the safety will revert to man coverage. At that point, the corner will just take the receiver he's lined up against and the safety will take the receiver he's lined up against. And it'll just be man coverage. But it's a pattern match man coverage. Sometimes here it referred to as two-trap because it's designed to trap those out routes. Because if that inside receiver goes out breaking route, that safety is not the one who covers him. Instead, the outside corner who was previously lined up against the number one receiver, he's the one covering that route, but he's got to jump on that out route. Now, why is this important for Josh Norman? Because what it means is Josh Norman's forced to play off He can't be physical at the beginning of the route, which means the receiver who's lined up across from him has time to build up ahead of steam. And Norman has to confirm 
that the number two receiver is not breaking out before he turns his hips and runs with the receiver across from him. It allows the receiver to kind of get up on the toes of the corner. And being able to turn your hips and open up and run in those circumstances is a true test of recovery speed and long speed for a corner. A lot of people will get hit with illegal contact penalties here because they'll panic. They won't make the decision as quickly as they should. They'll go to bail out and realize the guy's on top of them. He's already stacking now. That's something I'd like to see from Norman to see if he can still run. And I didn't see it against the Raiders, but I did see positive stuff. So I hope I did a decent job explaining that, explaining Palms coverage, how it applies to Josh Norman. It's something the Bills run as far as pattern matching coverages. One more thing to talk about. Stefan Diggs might have been built to be Josh Allen's receiver. He just didn't know it yet. The ability to separate in the short area helps Josh Allen against man-heavy cover zero, cover one looks that he struggled with in 2019. The ability to be a contested catch receiver helps Josh Allen on some of the deep balls, perhaps the ones he maybe underthrows a little bit, like the Raiders one. Those two traits are very rarely paired together. Very rarely do you find a receiver who can separate that well in the short area, run routes like that and uncover, present themselves to a strong-armed quarterback who doesn't necessarily always throw with the best anticipation, and also contested catchability. That's rare. It's a rare pairing. You add on to that... Watch Stefan Diggs in the scramble drill, ladies and gentlemen. Watch him when Josh Allen breaks contain. He knows where to go. He knows how to present himself to a quarterback and make the plays available. Stefan Diggs is every bit as good as we expected him to be, perhaps even better. Another good game from Josh Allen, MVP candidate. Stefan Diggs doing things. The run defense starting to figure it out a little bit. Let's hope we get some better coverage from our linebackers and the back end. Josh Norman maybe looking like he can run, perhaps. Overall, it was a good day. I understand that the line is, let's blow this thing and get out of here. But I like to think that as the Bills were leaving Las Vegas last week, They instead said this. That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.
to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.